Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the lines with the movers and shakers and the film and TV makers. Uh, and we talk to everybody, writers, directors, producers, actors, costume designers, composers, production designers, sound gurus, video gurus. Uh, and today, I'm very excited. I've been talking about this. We've been waiting for this. Um, we've got somebody that encompasses at least three of those categories, if not more. I'm going to bring Mark Pellington live in one second. But, you know... If you miss us live every Monday here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, you can always catch us afterwards. We're out on all the podcasts um, by tonight and then tomorrow. We go out at different times as a podcast format. Plus, you can find plenty of my movie reviews and interviews at BehindTheLensOnline.net. Follow us on social media, MovieSharkD on Twitter, BTL Radio Show on Twitter, Behind the Lens on Facebook, behind uh, Debbie Lynn Elias on Facebook, and you will always find links to every show, to reviews, to interviews. But right now, without any further ado, I'm bringing the man himself live, Mark Pellington. Hello, my friend. Hi. God, what a great intro. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me okay? Uh, good. That was just way too kind. <laughs> Do you know what I just realized as I was making notes and things early this morning at four in the morning? Do you know you and I have known each other almost 25 years? 25? Really? Almost 25 years. So does it go back to, does it go back to going all the way? We go back long before Arlington Road. We go back when you... We first met on some music videos that you were doing. Yes. Yes. Well, I started doing them in 1980. God. And I love this. Part of it's like, in 1985, I made my first video. So, right, that's 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I still make them. I still make videos. still love making them. Um, you know, I just, you know... Things change, things change, but uh, then they don't change at all on, on a certain level. Yeah. And, you know, but I could, I, I won't, I won't lament the change. Uh, <laughs> it's just because you have to, you have to adjust. I remember being at MTV because I worked there from 1984 to 1990. And I remember sitting in my office, I was like a, PA and then became an associate producer and I'd watch every video and I would look at the videos, the music videos that feature guys made, right? Mm -hmm. Sam Peckinpah made a Julian Lennon video. Jonathan Demme did a New Order video. Um, the Palma did a Springsteen video. And I remember looking at these things and thinking like, oh, these are terrible. They're so <laughs> slow. They're just so boring. You know, so now you would go the other generation, you go the other side, and you look at videos and you look at stuff online and you see a different aesthetic develop, a different generation. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just the technology's changed, the distribution's changed, uh, yet at the end of the day, you either got it or you don't. That's it. So that's, that's kind of the end game of it. Yeah, but I know while you were there in 85, right around the same time, that's when I was still picking up work doing, working on crews for music videos. I did a ton. I was on crews for a ton of Rick Springfield's videos. Um, wow. I think I did. I think I worked. out here? Yeah. Yeah. I think I worked. I think it, I came in at almost 20 music videos of Rick's that I worked on, along with other. Yeah, I think my my first trip to L.A. was like 1986. Mm -hmm. But it was somewhere... Yeah, it was somewhere in that yeah. time frame, like around 1990, between 85, 90, somewhere in there. But yeah, but no, you and I have known each other over 25 years. I realized that and I went, oh my God. Well, that's good. 
and we're both we're both we're both still here. Still here. That's the amazing. I I loved one of your recently. You had some. It's some. It wasn't a rant. It was some like just some some perturbed response to some new custom within. I don't know whether it was in the world of film publicity or screen. It was just whatever. It was just again. It was emblematic of like hollow culture change. Some some yet another statement of the vacuous nature of certain content creators, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, po- I, I go off on little tangents about that more often than not, I think, Mark, because, you know, once you've watched where the industry was and you see how it comes up and you are a student of history of the industry on both sides of the camera and you see, you know, how badly and how much harm ignorance of publicists, ignorance of um, filmmakers that just want to, it's like, oh, I like films. I'm going to just get a camera. I'm going to make films. Or you have people who are reviewing films and it's, well, do you have any kind of education, training, knowledge, anything? But no, I watch movies, so I'm going to review films. And I definitely think the criticism, I think that film criticism is severely deteriorated and nothing wrong with i love the internet i love the democratization Mm -hmm. of filmmaking i love that anybody can go grab a camera and make something i am a big proponent of that uh i think that hey anybody can have an opinion uh anybody can it doesn't make everybody a critic right and i've seen it change i've seen it change from literally my first movie in 96 through arlington road then the internet explodes. I saw it on Henry Poole, like mm-hmm. 2007. Like, oh, wow, this is quite different than it was five years ago. Yeah. And if I melt with you, boy, when you get... And look, nothing wrong with getting bad reviews. It's like every filmmaker gets them, and if they don't, God, you know, it's like suffering loss in your family. It's like you're, you're blessed that you dodged that bullet. But the, the personal attack nature of it is what really... That's you know really upset. That's what upsets me. Yeah. And then you rise above. You're like, look, twerp. You haven't made shit in your life, so I'm not. I have to just like. Uh, and then I was following recently that crap with, uh, and I'm sure you know Chris Bumbray, the critic, right? Yes. And his response to Owen Gleiberman attacking Ben Affleck. Um, in, I don't know, and I'm not on Twitter, right? But mm-hmm. I happened upon this on Facebook. And look, Ben was in my first movie. I've known Ben since 1996. Yeah, he was right? in loan. Well, yeah, he was in loan. And uh, in going all the way. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I'm also 10 years sober. So it's like I really respect somebody who's like really like, and I also, Owen Gleiberman gave me probably the worst review of my life, yet his response to it when I reached out to him personally was so glib mm-hmm. and hollow that I followed this pylon on him with, you know, just like, I believe, that, I believe in karma. I think karma will come back and get people on all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, again, people don't, you're great. And I and I say, I think you're a great critic, and I don't say that only because you've been supportive of my work, but I think that you're very balanced. And I've read stuff when you haven't cared for something, and you re- it, it reminds me of like what Roger Ebert. Um, Ebert gave me both good reviews and and critical reviews, but the criticism was always like from a really interesting, objective place. Uh, much like FX Feeney, the dear mm-hmm. FX Feeney, like, uh, you know, like they would always see something that the filmmaker was trying to do, or maybe they'd say, hey, this wasn't wholly successful, or, you know, why it really didn't connect for them. But there was always like this, uh, you know, you never felt like you were personally maligned. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's, I love, I love approaching, especially with 
first-time filmmakers, first or second-time filmmakers, newcomers. I love looking at the film with a filmmaker's eye, but a, a, an objective eye, to un, un, try and see where they're coming from and then explain to them how they might have been able to do something differently because this is why it fails. And that, to me, is much more constructive for the industry as a whole, for the filmmakers themselves, rather than somebody just saying, I don't like it. Why don't you like yeah. it? I just don't like it. Well, that to me, that's hogwash. That is not saying anything. Um, I don't like it is not an aesthetic argument. No. That's not enough. And, and you, I've had those. you got a lot of that with I melt with I, you. Pardon me? You got a lot of that I don't like it with I melt with you. That was a that sure did. You sure did. And what I find very funny, and if you go back and read, I think I even have it in my review, um, is it, this is a film that people, once you've lived 40 years, once you're 40 years old, you've got a better understanding of the world and a better understanding of what these characters are, what they're going through, their relationship, their friendships, what's happening. And a lot of people, and I've seen it now pop up on social media, they have now gone back, now that they are older, and they have re-watched, reviewed, I Melt With You, and now they're changing their mind. That, oh. You know, that's very funny. That's funny you say that. About a month ago, I went on to, I don't know what it was for comment, user reviews. I don't know where it would have been. Um, and I noticed that. I noticed, like, wow, in the last two to three years that mm -hmm. there were, um, you know, in, there were people that responded to it. And, and in that nature of that life experience or, you know, I don't know. I mm -hmm. don't think I could make that movie again. No. I don't think if you gave me that same script that I would make it with the same um, abandon or fervor or uh, style even. Mm -hmm. But where I was, in my life, what I needed to kind of go through, and I, um, and I was kind of shocked at, you know, at criticism at that point. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's Iron Man or, like, hey, an experimental little piece like that. If you're going to rise on the platform of Sundance, you're going to get judged. You're going to get, you know, um, people are going to, Look, and it was also kind of a pre, um, you know, thing about the world now and at the time then, mm -hmm. there's like zero empathy for wealthy white men lamenting about their problems. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, they're like, really like, we really could give a fuck. Uh, you have no pot to piss in uh, to talk about, you know, your existential malaise and your regrets in your life. And that's, you know, that's just that kind of, that has nothing to do with gender imbalance. That's just a reactionary statement to say, great, it's not my experience. I didn't connect to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the fact when something really makes people hate it, I know I've, I've hated movies. I've just, I've just, Something has been been like I just I everything about it, its fiber, its being, it's the way it's made. I'm like God. I really dislike this, and I have to ask myself why. What is it about it? And it's just you know, as my mother used to say, the famous Mickey Pellington said, <laughs> "Honey, that's why they have 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins." You know, I'm like, great. Oh my I God. Just, I remember I walked out of Clerks. I told Kevin Smith that later, years later. I I hated that movie. I was like, I hated the black and white. I hated the guys. I thought they were stupid. I'm like, ugh. I, you know? And I just, I like, I'm 45 minutes into the movie, I said, I just, I hate this movie. I'm leaving. Yeah, I can honestly say I have never, ever walked out of a movie, Mark, but there's some, trust me, I wanted to walk out. 
I wanted to walk out, but I have never walked out of a film. I stay through the bitter end of every credit. And I've done this since I was very, very young. And my dad would take me to the movies. And it was like, no, you sit there. You sit there. You watch. P and of course, credits were much shorter back in 1960, 61, 62. But it was just, this is what you did. And it's what I still do, no matter how bad a film is. And there are some there are some directors, you know, some of them. And I've walked in to sit, do interviews with them. And I and I, I know them well enough. I can say, did you see a psychiatrist before you made this film? What were you thinking? <laughs> and, you know, and because we know each other, you know, they laugh, but yeah. they go, OK, what what is wrong right away? It's OK. What is wrong? And then we get into the cinematography or the sound design uh, or even the scoring. Um, but, yeah, but no, there are some that I true. And there, when there are people that say, I really want a review. And I'll tell their publicist, no, tell them, no, they really do not want a review. It's their first film. They really do not want a review because it will not be kind. And... I think that's that's something that I think the internet has affected is the fact that people, as you said, they just like throw out just subjectivity without anything to substantiate it. And they do it maliciously in many cases towards the individual filmmaker. And well, I still get jobs. And I think that, you know, you when you show the work, when actually people look at the work. I mean, I'll use um, my last film, Nostalgia. I love that movie. Reviews. It got mixed reviews. But like, I, I literally got a call a few months ago from John Hand's agent and said, hey, John, is a, I'd like you have a copy. In the old days, it would be a print. Mm -hmm. You have a copy of, I'm, of um, Nostalgia because Clint Eastwood, John's up for a Clint Eastwood movie and Clint was looking for John, his really great dramatic work, and John wanted to show him nostalgia. So I pulled together a link and, you know, a nice, nice copy of it and sent it over to him. And I was, you know, very pleased that John regarded his own work in that way. And I think that actors, when they see the work, they don't care about reviews. I mean, you know, they just they they want to work with other good actors with a director that they know can direct them, mm -hmm. uh, and they want to work with filmmakers. And at this point, I just, it's hard enough to get any film made if you have your own taste, and uh, you just got to keep going. You just don't stop. You know. Well, you get some of the greatest actors, but the thing is, big or small, um, you bring something out in the talent that you work with. And it's not just your actors, but you pay, the way you pay attention to the score, to needle drops in a film. Um, the way, take a look at The Last Word with Shirley MacLaine um, yeah. as, as a prime example there. And you pay such attention to cinematography. And I really believe, Mark, because of coming up with music videos, uh, I think you've got a much better sense of the power of the visual, of the power of color, of the power of music, and how that works together to showcase a good script, a good performance, and even to well, I uplift. Think I appreciate that. And you know what? Here's something I've learned, and I can't wait for you to see and it will be a while before it's a movie, but you'll be able to see it sooner than later on the last film I made is going to be on Quibi, mm -hmm. the Jeffrey Katzenberg app, April 5th. And it's called Survive with Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones and Corey Hawkins from Straight Outta Compton. Mm -hmm. And it is a survival tale uh, about two people who survive a plane crash and it is the best movie I've made since Mothman Prophecy. And it takes all of the personal nature of nostalgia and last words and melt and puts it with a more of a 
very commercial genre script and a really strong script. And it's, I love seeing, you know, I shot it the same way. I shoot everything else. But when the script is really, really, really solid and you're using music and some songs, it's, it really just works because it takes it to the next level. I look back at Henry Poole or Melt, and there's sometimes where I think the music, and I appreciate what you said about that, but I think sometimes the music uh, was substituting for narrative, um, a certain degree of narrative mm-hmm. cohesion, and some montages can really work to push the story along. I think the last word, it really worked well oh, in exquisite. that because um, it was on the page it was, the music was part of the script uh, and I love working with music I love working with imagery but I think that Survive is you know re- I'm really super proud of it uh, you know I wish it was coming out as a movie right away but that's the nature of what we're opportunities were provided with now. Well, you know? I'm dying to see it. I saw the teaser, the trailer, yeah. and yeah. I am just, it is gorgeous. You've got Dave Delvin as your cinematographer, as your DP on it. Yeah. And Dave. And that teaser wasn't even the final color correct. You're going to. Wow. You're really going really to love it. That was like a rough pass that we did really quickly for them to have something out there. We were still finishing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, it's, a, it's just a great story. The performances are really, it's a great two-hander. Yeah. You know, it's a really great, great tale. Well, I know I'm excited to see you working with Delvin because he comes out, he's got, like yourself, he's got, he's very heavy in music videos. He's got so much experience with music videos and the look and the feel. Um, you and, know what his background is. You know where he was, how he was trained. He was trained. He was Janusz Kaminski's gaffer. So he, Dave was trained <laughs> on Spielberg movies. Private Ryan, War of the Worlds, Lincoln. He was the gaffer on seven Spielberg movies oh for um, Janusz Kaminski until then he started shooting about know, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I did a pilot with him. I did a yeah. video. I did a commercial. And always was looking to. Um, did you do Red Widow? Did you do Red Widow with him? No, nope, no, nope. no. Red Widow, I did with a guy named Eric Schmidt. But but Dave Devlin is a was like Spielberg's guy with Spielberg and Janish's gaffer. I bow to Janish. I bow to his work. There, some of the true cinematographers out there, that and Janish is one of them. He is just amazing. Amazing. Anybody who can do Private Ryan, um, Lincoln, and Diving Bell and the Butterfly, that right there is like a pretty wide palette. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Survive, I'm really curious about Survive because the whole premise of two people survive, you know, a plane crash, they're on a snow-covered remote mountain, somebody's injured, this is very similar to the plot device of Hani Abu Asad's The Mountain Between Us that came out a few years ago. Yeah, I thought, I thought, this is so good. I, I love, I love Kate Winslet. Mm-hmm. I love Idris Elba. I, 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 found, I found that movie a little flat and a little polite. Uh, and ours is far more intense and aggressive than that experientially. Mm-hmm. You know, as I had, when I sure. saw the mountain between us, I had said it was like a perfect date night movie. It you know it didn't push into terror. It didn't do. It had a you know, we watched this love story blossoming through hardship. But it was it was tame. Compared to what I'm seeing just with this teaser trailer for Survive, it looks it's very tame. Um, so I'm dying, dying to see Survive, Mark. Well, you will, you will see it 
very shortly. I wish I could say, oh, I could screen it for you right now, but I, I can't. So it will be, you know, about three and a half weeks. Good. They're going to air, I think, the first three episodes on the first day. Then in each day, they'll do the next episode. So by, you know, whatever, by nine days in, people will be able to watch it all. I'm really curious to see what kind of response it gets. I've seen a bunch of the other Quibi stuff, and they're really good. Mm -hmm. The quality of it is really good. You know, just the the, literally the the filmic, cinematic quality, uh, the actors is is strong. Now, did you shoot this as a feature that's then cut down, or did you shoot this episodically? What was the process like for this, since we're going to be viewing it broken into many episodes um you know what i read the script the first time as a movie as a feature then i read it first four times as a feature and they said oh do you want to read the quibi version and you read it and you're like oh okay there's the episode one episode two so every like 10 12 pages there's a new episode mm-hmm. so it makes you realize instead of traditional three-act structures, just have some shit happen. Some events happen every 10 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so is that the thing? Ooh, is she going to steal something? Is, is she going to get caught? Is the plane, oh, is what's going to happen to the plane? Are they going to get out? Are they going to get down the mountain? So there's all these uh, obstacles, dramatic obstacles. Some of them are cliffhangers. Some of them are dramatic questions. A few of them for the Quibi format, you, you, you kind of intensify for the episode. But no different than when you would make act breaks for TV shows. Like, mm-hmm. ooh, there's a the little sting. Like, ooh, what's the dramatic question? And that's what streamers do. Mm-hmm. And it, so people want to watch the next one, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really the only difference uh, the other good difference is when you string it together to make the movie, mm-hmm. so you've shot 12 10-minute episodes roughly. Some mm-hmm. are nine, some are seven and a half. And when we string it together as a movie, we put to a scene back in, we stretched out some vistas, some mountain stuff that felt long on the phone, but with a big screen, you'd be able to have some breath with it. Mm-hmm. The movie moved. It had a pace. Mm-hmm. As opposed to doing a movie where the first assembly is three and a half hours, and you're like, you're constantly trying to uh, um, compress. Mm-hmm. Your, it's reductive filmmaking. As Paul Schrader says, don't write a 120 page script because then you're going to be taking stuff out. <laughs> write an 85 page script that lets you then let something breathe, or even, even when it's typed, no one ever walks out of a movie and says it was too short. Ever, right? So what we found was it was really interesting working that way, just even as, even in looking at it as chapters, you still have to string it together and look at it as a whole picture, but by making each thing its most compressed and economical, uh, you know, you look at we looked at the first three episodes and we're like, it wasn't that it dragged because it doesn't drag at eight minutes. It was narrative clarity. Mm-hmm. So literally, you were back to the old days of like something you learn when now you're a little more mature is like cut it to the bone, take everything out that's not essential. Mm-hmm. And that's horrible. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just. But it's okay. It teaches you what you really, really, really need. Mm-hmm. So you're like, hmm, do we really need that scene? I like the scene. Oh, it's really good. I really like the colors, and it's a great shot. Do you need the scene? And you gotta, you know, and you learn that making moves. You gotta, you gotta kill stuff. And it's so hard, you know, when people are when they shoot and they start with three and a half hours or four hours, and then they're killing their darlings because if you're if you've shot something and you're looking at four hours, that whole thing is a darling to you at that point. 
And I, yeah. I like, I like the way you're you're approaching this, and I love this analysis that you're giving. Um, well, we had to because of the because of the so you go with the episodes first, and it, and it was interesting. And then maybe because it was a genre movie, it was like just like you know Jeffrey Katzenberg. I remember like their thing, and it's in the press. He says, you know, we it's kind of the culture is like make sure that there's some kind of moment in every episode that's kind of like, wow, mm-hmm. oh, wow, like intense. And it doesn't have to be action. There's dramatic revelations, there's memories, there's, there's turns of, there's, you know, plot twists. And that's what makes you, right, as a movie going, you're like, okay. Now, most people will sit in the theater and give, in the old days, you'd say, "Great, I'm gonna. I'll give any movie 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'll give the first act, so I know where it's going. I know I'm in good hands. And I think that 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 time frame is shortened. You know, I think that it's important to kind of engage an audience. Um, you know, again, doesn't have to be fast. It can be. You just gotta. You know, it's it's harder, and it's true, and People are like, why do I need to go to a theater? I went and saw an art movie. I called it an art movie. Mm-hmm. called I Was at Home, but German movie. Won Best Director of Berlin last year. I saw it at the Lemley Royal mm-hmm. two Sundays ago at one fifteen. There were four people in the theater, right? Yep. So people have to show up at a specific time. Same way with the arc light. Great. My daughter saw Invisible Man. It was showing like every hour. Yeah. It was like every hour and 10 minutes. On eight screens. On eight screens. It was great. It was easy to choose to go to the theater and see the movie. But this other one, like if I was like, wait, I got to go all the way to Santa Monica at that specific time. Mm-hmm. It narrowed my window. and I really wanted to see it. But. Yeah, if there's some, but I think, I still think my bandwagon for years has been, and and I think you know this, it's like all these multiplex theaters, it's like, come on, we don't need Invisible Man on 8 out of 12 screens or 10 out of, we don't need Avengers Endgame on 12 out of 12 screens. Take two of your screens at least and leave them for the art house film. Leave them for the little independent films. Leave them for a film like Nostalgia, like The Last Word. Leave them for, you know, it, everybody can't get to the Lemley or they can't get to a landmark. Most people but don't can. You think, but don't you think that there's enough, if I'm, if I'm on the other side as a filmmaker, yes, I agree with you. But if I'm the distributor on the other side, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, yeah, I put the movie in there and nobody showed up. I mean, I, believe me, I've had this conversation with like Howard Cohen from Roadside Attractions and Andrew Carpin from Bleecker Street and the guys from Magnolia and people that have released my films and people that I know. And it's like the world is, is littered with, okay, yep. Wow, it's really interesting. I just I don't really want to go. And uh, when I've got Postmates and seven thousand movies on my thing, people have become lazy. Well, that that's we, uh, a big part Justin, of it. You and Justin Chang can write up a great review of something, and it doesn't mean that people are going to go. No, it and doesn't. Get in their car and see it. But they they'll go see the farewell. Why would they see the farewell and not nostalgia? I don't know. Mark, I watched the movie. It felt different, right? Felt that experience felt different. That story felt different. So I don't I don't know. I don't have any answers. Uh, I don't know. It was good to make survive. I'd love to keep making big and small. I only make small because um you know, those are seem easier to be able to just get made. The big ones that I've been attached to, remake of the orphanage or the trap it tries, they never get made. Mm-hmm. 
doesn't mean that I choose to make small movies. I'd love to make $50 million thrillers or $30 million thrillers, but nobody's asking me to. Well, something you did get asked to do that I think for any filmmaker is exciting. You're now part of the Star Trek universe with the Star Trek short tracks. Yeah, that was fun. You know, uh, Alex Kurtzman, who's like the big wizard of all that yes. empire, was a big Mothman Prophecies fan. And I met him years ago. Then I you know, stayed in touch with him, and he asked me to do a voiceover for one of the Star Trek Explorer, I don't Discovery, I don't know. There's so many of the shows. <laughs> and I did the voiceover, and then we went to dinner, and he goes, it was really sweet. He goes, why aren't you doing more movies? Like, what's like, what's the deal? I'm like, again, it's not my, uh, not my choice completely. Uh, and anyway, if you want to do a Star Trek episode, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Doing a TV episode, there's little, there's little to do. And uh, he said, well, what about we have these shorts? We have these really cool shorts that you could do. And I said, yes. And he sent them to me, and I loved them. You know, one's a Michael Chabon short, short very literary, very verbal, uh, like 12 minutes. And the other one is a non-verbal, no-dialogue, little short story. Um, so that was fun to do. Those were fun. Well, the one, epi- fun. The, the one episode that you did Q&A about Spock's first yeah. day on the Enterprise Oh, my God. We've got Anson Mount as Christopher Pike. You've got Ethan Peck as Spock. It's fabulous. And that's the one that Shaban wrote. Are you, are you a Trekkie? Are you a Trekkie? Um, in, in many respects, yes. I'm more addicted God, to the... Okay. Um, I was not a Trekkie in any way, shape, or form. I've never seen Star Wars. I never saw Star Trek. I never knew anything about anything, which was probably good, because I was like, okay, I'm just going to tell the story. And it was great working with those guys. I knew Anson from Red Widow. Mm-hmm. Ethan Peck was awesome. I knew Rebecca Romaine's husband, Jerry O'Connell, great mm-hmm. person, great crew, great resources up there. You know, you're not, like, scraping by. You've got, they've got three sets, full sets of anamorphic lenses, three oh. sets. Oh, uh, two technos. So you you have all the toys at your discretion. Oh my God! Well, and on those, Glenn Keenan is he's in as DP, and he's the DP on Star Trek Discovery. And yep. you know, one look at the show, you uh, you know, everybody knows how good the quality, the visual acuity, and the the visual storytelling is. Um, so, I mean, I think the Star Trek short treks, I think they're brilliant. Oh, my God, they're so good. Did you see the one with Aldous Hodge? No. I forget the name of it. It's like a virtual, uh, like he's in love. It's like kind of like her. Uh, it's amazing. It was, I think, done the season before mine, two seasons ago. Check it out. It's okay. brilliant. Very emotional. But I'm enamored, especially with the with the Star Trek short treks, because it's my understanding that Kurtzman is really they play with some themes here in the short treks. See how they play out before potentially expanding them into the hour shows. Yeah, which is great. I mean, he gets to like it's like a short story or a backstory here, a little flashback here, a little side, you know, tangent perspective on something. The thing about the universe is a great, it's a great idea. It gives you extra content and lets audiences really, uh, I've done three or four interviews for those, and they say, like, what was your choice of this? I'm like, I don't know, ask Alex. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to overplay my role. Um, you know, you just you direct the performers and you tell that story, but certain choices within it, boy, these people know that stuff inside out. Mm-hmm. How fun is... I got in trouble, actually. What did you I do? Had lunch. I had lunch 
with Ethan and Rebecca on uh-huh. a Saturday, right? And I posted, like, hey, having lunch with uh, Ethan and Rebecca. And I put hashtag Trek, hashtag Shabon. People were able to figure out, oh, my God, number one and, and whatchamacallit are going to be together and Michael Shabon is going to write something. And I was like a dumbass. I was like, well, how do they figure that out? I'm like, well, because you're saying they're together with you. I was like, oops. Like, I, Alex was sweet. He goes, that's okay. I just, I don't know, you know, that, like, let the cat out of the bag. Oh, my God. You know, for you, Mark, how fun is it to do something like Short Treks, where you have Three complete sets of anamorphics. You've got your technocranes. Everything is at your disposal. Do you like having all the tools and all the toys in in the toy box to play with? Or do you prefer the type of storytelling that your films really are that uh, that come out of that come from your heart and you work on a more base level, I think, than with all the, well, the gizmos? Survive is actually the best merger of the two. There's tools, there's drones, there's cranes, there's multiple cameras. So you're able to flex your muscles as a filmmaker with a bigger budget. Mm-hmm. Yet my style and methodology and intimacy and approach was the same. So I was like, oh, it's really nice to have to have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but like last spring, right after I did the Trek tours, I made a seven- I made a $7,000 short with Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones and this girl Madeline Pesch from Riverdale. Very abstract, arty, like 25-minute film for $7,000. We had two cameras and that was it. Now, I love doing that for the freedom of it. And I, did, and I had a little drone and I didn't need more than that. I didn't need dollies. or. But you know what it really comes down to? It comes down to time. Mm-hmm. What? How much time do you need to make any one piece? Okay. Then the toys are secondary. Like, oh boy, it would be nice to have a choice of using something or not, right? But it's still, how many days do I have to do it? There was times on the other Trek thing, because we were working with kids, where the hours were tight. And you're still like, come on, come on, got to rush, got to rush. So that was no different than the indie movie. That was no different than the last word where you're, scrambling to get a scene done because you're working with minors. So it's really like I look at any piece of material and say, great, how many days will it take me to make it? You know, the old ad is of Atlanta Burns. It's only an eighth of a page, a sixteenth of a page on a script, but mm-hmm. you could spend five days doing it. And you could crank through 12 pages of dialogue in five hours if you've got good actors. So it's, you know, every, everyone is different. Every meal is different. Every presentation is different. Some DPs are comfortable with the same bucket. Let's go shoot. And uh, other ones are like, no, I need my truck, and I need the guys, and I need all this stuff. And you're like, here's a perfect example. My friend Eric Messerschmidt shoots mine hunters for Fincher, right? Mm-hmm. And I love him. And I've done two commercials with him. I did a video with him and a commercial with him. And they were both good size budgets. And he, like, needed his, he needed his stuff, right? And then he goes and shoots Mine Hunters, and he just shot Mank, the movie for <laughs> Fincher. I visited him a few months ago, right? Oh, I, I've, been, white. I've been getting daily updates on Mank. So Fincher's a friend and a god, right? Yes. So Eric Messerschmidt just texted me the other day. Hey, I'm done. What do you got going on? Like he wants to shoot. And I have this little movie that I'm trying to do, possibly, that is a hybrid of doc, documentary, meaning observation of truth, mm-hmm. music, musical, and narrative. Kind of take like my Chelsea Wolf movie Lone, which was fifty minutes, and like, can I do a 50, can I do a feature like that? Right? Mm-hmm. And if it 
I think we're going to scrape together like 400000 bucks, write some roles for actors, because you don't want to make it much bigger in terms of the investment, right? Right. Because, right? But if I can get a few actors in it, feel like you could sell it, make your money back. Mm-hmm. Make your money back. Break even. Um, I'm not sure, and maybe, maybe he's listening, I'm not sure that Eric would be the right guy to do it and be like, okay, Eric, go get two Alexa Minis, go get six lenses, um, and you're going to not have all the lights that you need are going to have to sit on a cube van, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have some LED, things little handheld LEDs, a few little china balls, nothing bigger than a couple plug-in units, right? And you design around that because like that's the, that's the style of the movie. I'd say 60% of Survive, there's not no light. Wow. Available light, shoot through light coming through a window, turn a practical on, maybe in close-ups, a little, a little, a little beauty light on Sophie Turner. Mm-hmm. Lighting is what kills you. Lighting is what takes the time. And a good DP like Dave Devlin's like, I tell you, writing goes, let's go, let's shoot. Yeah. Wow. What with ever, with all with all these things that you're with cameras now, you know, for a while the Sony F7 was really good for low light, no light situations. I know some other things. If I think the Sony Venice does the same thing, uh, as an upgrade from the F7. I don't like the Venice. You do okay. Now tell me why I've had three or four filmmakers in the past month that I've talked to that shot on the Venice and they loved it. So now I'm curious as to why you don't like it. Right. I didn't have a good experience with it. It's too much gas. There's too much shit. And I was on a commercial. It's too much gear. It was just too much, too much in the way of like, and the same VP shot the last word, Eric Corris mm-hmm. with, quarter of the gear and I pull up and I pull up to them like what do you what do we need all this shit for oh it's just, you know it's just stuff and I'm like see the commercial budget expands for the equipment and it just then you move slower and it just becomes drudgery and I don't know I didn't find it I don't know I, I didn't you know I didn't I found it a little too clean. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the softness of the Alexa, but it doesn't really matter. They're all just capture devices. It's just it's all about the glass, right? And it's all about the lenses. And we shot Survive on the Red uh, Monster, which is 8K, mm-hmm. because you have to um, do a vertical version, so you're blowing up half of the movie to make it go vertical mm-hmm. which is a whole other ball of wax and a whole other conversation but um you know it's just each dp you're sitting there on the day and you're like okay there's a practical light and there's something coming through the window and you're looking at the onboard monitor or if you're lucky enough to have a dit you're like okay, mm-hmm, a little more contrast well like done I mean, I don't know how many videos and commercials I set to look with my DP. And oftentimes we just take that high res, convert it, and, uh, you know, uh, give them the EDL and put the LUTs on that we use mm-hmm. on the shoot and then do a little tiny tweak. And I'm like, that's it. That's what I want it to look like. Mm. Have you had a chance at time to sit at seven hundred <laughs> and I have the best colorist in the world, <laughs> Jill Bogdanovich, who did Joker. She did Last Words, she did Nostalgia, she does my public service announcements, videos. Uh I, I wish I could take her a big budge thing, but she's there's some jobs I literally just can't afford to take to her. Mm-hmm. You know, have you seen had a chance it hasn't come out yet, but I don't know if you've had a chance to see it in any uh advanced screenings uh the climb that's coming out 
Nope, I haven't seen it. I'm curious. I'm curious when it. I think it comes out on the twentieth. I think it comes out next week. Zach Kupperstein's the DP on it. Um, they shot the whole thing on Alexa Mini, but where it really stands out is he used um, the Cook Speed Pancros and the Verital Zoom, and gets some really, really beautiful looks and a lot of natural light. Um, Which lenses did you say he used? He used the Rehouse Cook Speed Pancros and the Cook Verital Zoom. Yeah. 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 I stopped using Zooms about four years ago. I had, a, I had a couple DPs that were like, what are we carrying the Zoom for? Just put put a prime on. Mm-hmm. And it was really good. That was a good shift to make. Cooks are great. Oh. Like cooks, you know, uncoated. I just like uncoated, older, um, slower lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a video for this group called Flora Cash that the DP had all these old vintage lenses. My DP, Matt Rowe, uses all these. He just bought a set of lenses from Bradford Young, who's another DP I used to work with mm-hmm. in commercials before he became a god, who's an amazing <laughs> cinematographer, like brilliant. Yes. He did Arrival. Did you ever see the movie uh, Where's Kira with Michelle Pfeiffer? Yes. He shot that, which is like one of the ballsiest, darkest movies you'll ever see in the history of movies. And it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, and I saw it in the theater and on streaming, and it's like, it's dark. That's like a fucking dark movie. But I know lately, you know, I've a lot of directors, I've been talking to a lot of, um, a lot of uh, first-time directors. They've been doing other stuff, but now they're moving into features. And a good percentage ingenue. The ingenue optimos are something that they seem to be gravitating towards along with the cooks. And every once in a while, somebody's somebody's coming up and, and using the Zeiss super speeds. Yeah, I don't know. You know, my my my, uh, my boy Matt is like the total like into like the lens porn and um, <laughs> again like I'm just, again I don't really use zooms anymore. Right. We made um, we made uh, the last word. We had six anamorphic lenses total. Total. With um, with anamorphic, and like we didn't even have matching, so you're doing like cross coverage. It's not like oh, we have a 75 and a 75, which like that's what you want. You just want a couple of corresponding lenses mm-hmm. you're doing coverage at the same time. But um, I, I don't know. You do with what you do. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine was like, Hellington, let's go shoot this movie with one lens." Let's shoot four by three aspect ratio film. I'm like, great, let's do it. I would do that. Of course you would. Then they don't have all the crap, right? You don't have all the crap and the cases and all the follow focus and all the shit and all the gear that slows you down and all the stuff and all the trucks and all the garbage. Which is good if you got time. I love doing a blind spot. 14 days, $10 million budget, <laughs> cranes and camera mounts and drones and three cameras and action. And those are great. We got the resources to do it. It's fun. Mm-hmm. We always say you got champagne taste with beer money. That's it. That's it. Right. You know, so, something I've never asked you before, Mark, what is your favorite movie of all time? What is my favorite movie of all time? Yeah. To watch? To watch. Mm, That's a good... It changes. It varies from day to day. But let's put... Wizard of Oz, All the President's Men, Jaws, um... Citizen Kane uh, as four in and Blue Velvet as five like movies that like I go back to Heat 
movies that I would just put on and watch and like just can always just watch and enjoy every every moment, every scene, every Rosemary's Babies in there. Crimes and misdemeanors in there. I'm surprised. Uh, uh, Magnolia. This is a very eclectic, interesting, interesting list here. Oh, yeah. Love. I went on a Francois Ozon jag last year. I was like watching all of his stuff. And, you know, just it, it depends. My taste is pretty varied. Yeah. I Kubrick, d- Malik. Uh, although some of Terrence's last, I met him. He was a big idol. I didn't love like the Yonder or the things, you know, the one in the, the shot in Austin. I like when it's got a little more narrative meat. I was thinking about going and they're, they're screening uh, Hidden Life, which I didn't get to see in the theater, and it's still in some theaters. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's there. Did you see it? I saw it. How was it? As to be expected, it's visually stunning. Um, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's serviceable. That's serviceable. That's a pretty. That's a pretty. <laughs> um, that's, I, that's a pretty mellow. Uh, that's all serviceable. Yeah, I was not bowled over by it. Not bowled over by it. Okay. I would call it. Was it narratively coherent, or was it just all over the place? I would not call it narratively coherent. There are sections that are narratively coherent. I would not call the. You know, I just I don't care what something looks like. Sometimes after. Something could be beautiful, but unless I have some degree of story. Now, it's interesting. I'm hustling over this film, the Alfie Allen thing that I made. And it's beautiful, and I love making it, but when I watch it, I'm like, nobody knows what the fuck's going on in it. So, I, oh, I'll just put a bunch of voiceover in it, but I'm like, I don't want to explain it. And it's hard to get somebody that like, where do you show us? Where do you just get a twenty-five minute film distributed? That's yeah, that's a big problem. It's hard. It's that's it, when they're that's it that betwixt and between. That is, you know, timing. That's so difficult, so difficult to get placement anywhere. anywhere. Hey, do you, do you it's know? It's like impossible to do. Do you know when um, your episode "Children of Mars" for the Star Trek short treks is going to air? Because I don't think that's it's on. It's on. It's on. is it on already? It's on yep, it was on. There, I think since January. Oh, okay. Yeah, January. Okay, then my bad because yeah. I haven't found it yet to see it. It's on there. Just go on to CBS All Access. And it's oh, I know where to find it. I just. <laughs> I haven't gotten on there yet. Well, unfortunately, my friend, we are actually all out of time for the entire show today. Well, let's do it again. Let's not let's do it whenever you want. I love talking to you. Oh, I always love talking to you, Mark. You are you are one of those special, wonderful people in my life that makes my life better for having you in it. Um, oh, thank you. And you know what I want to see? I want to see what your top ten of last year was. Will you uh, send it to me? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I want to. I want to know what your top ten was. I will send. I will send that to you. But right now, I'm going to be chomping at the bit to for April fifth when we when yep. when Survive comes out on QB. Uh I am so all excited. Your, all your your uh, your followers about it. And um, and I'll talk to you soon. I will. Thank you, my friend. And next time I'll I have to see you in soon. person because I have presents for you. Okay, I look forward to it. I have. And if you're up, well, if you're uh, if you're coming up to town and you're around, let me know, and I can 
be like, hey, you're going to bring it with you, and I can come see and buy a cup of coffee today. Yeah, because I have, I found more swag from an, an old film of yours, and then I have one of those steel records, 45s, from my dad's collection that I'm going to give you. Oh, brilliant. Fantastic. So. I can't wait to see it, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you again, my Bye friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was director, writer, producer, Mark Pellington. Um, yes, we actually broke a six-and-a-half-year streak. <laughs> Pam's making faces in there. But uh, this is, filmmakers especially will really appreciate this particular interview, talking about uh, you know the cameras, the lenses, the choices, a lot of filmmaking techniques that Mark uses in his approach to film. Um, I can't thank him enough. We've been trying to work something out so that he could do the show. Originally, he was going to come in studio. Then because of work, he couldn't. So we did the call in. But Mark will definitely be back. And we'll be back next week with more filmmakers calling in. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.